I want to share with you some of, some of my story and, and some of my journey. I always feel a little awkward saying my story. It's not really my story. It's God's story. I'm, I'm just in it. And before I get into mine, I want, I want to tell you a funny story. A funny story. We've got a, a visually impaired couple in our church. We both have guide dogs. And we were away on um, the Alpha Course weekend, the Holy Spirit weekend. And we'd actually used um, the, the venue as the Ealing Bible College's venue. So we'd gone over there for the weekend and they brought the dogs with them. And I was fascinated that these dogs went to the toilet on demand. On demand. This was at the time when we were trying to potty train my little boy. And I was like, this is a Jedi skill I need. And literally one click and they went for a week. Two clicks and they went for a... Yeah? No one has that problem in here for a carry-on clicking? No? Don't want to get messy. And I was fascinated. So then I'm talking to the guy that trains these dogs. And he's telling me he's training a dog now. He's got a puppy that he's training now. So one of the things we have to do is um, we have to get them used to being in a, a crowds of people. So what I do is I take him to the local supermarket, commission off the manager, which is Morrison's for him. And he says, well, we just sort of walk them around. And a couple of weeks later, I'm talking to him again. I said, well, how's it going with this dog? He said, well, it was going really well. But then in Morrison's, we had a bit of an issue. The dog did a two clicks. In Morrison's. I said, well, that's not such a big issue, is it? You, you tell the people, the voice comes over the town, I clean up an aisle for, and, and everyone's happy. He said, no, you don't understand this. Where it did the two clips? I said, what do you mean? He said, you know those big revolving doors as you walk in? <laughs> I never have to finish that. Actually, your minds did that one. My story is like many that y- you will have heard. And I, I never lay blame on anyone but myself. Every decision I took was my decision that led me into the life that I led. I grew up in a, a fairly rough area. It's a town called Nottingham, just outside Leeds. And it's a good place to come from, but a bad place to move to. And still to this day, we went back filming last year with the BBC. They did a bit of a documentary called for, for Inside Out, um, co- covering my story. And we were back filming on the estate. And the top half of it has just been bulldozed. They've just knocked it down because they couldn't do anything with it. The house I actually grew up, was born in, is all you can see is the foundation outline. It's not there anymore. And while we were up there filming, um, it was like, it was desolate. And one of the film crew made this comment, oh, it doesn't seem that bad up here. And just as she said that, um, two guys came past with a silver cross pram with a 15-inch plasma telly in it. And they went, hey, it's Daryl! And that, within five minutes, then the whole estate had come out on BMXs and motorbikes. They'd all sort of flooded out. And these BBC crew were getting really nervous, thinking we're going to have all the camera equipment nicked. I said, no, you'll be all right. You'll be fine. And, but it, so it still is like that. When I grew up there, it was uh, the police don't run on it after dark in single crew cars. They, the buses won't run on there after dark. If you drive through slower than 30 miles an hour, you'll lose the wheels off your car. It's just that kind of an area. And so I'm often asked the question, why did you get involved with crime? So it wasn't a conscious decision. I didn't go see the careers lady at school and say, how do you go about getting into armed robbery? Is there a course I can do? It, it was just there. And I just sort of fell into drugs and drinking and it just progressed and progressed and progressed from soft drugs and alcohol to cannabis to the days of the early rave scene. He was in the mid to late 30s. Who's going to confess to being in the early rave scene? Whistle possible, white gloves, all that business. And it was ecstasy, cocaine, LSD, amphetamine. And you'd go out on big two, three, four-day benders on these stimulant drugs, and then someone had this genius idea, because you felt like a car crash after you came down off these drugs, 
if you smoked a few lines of heroin, it levelled you right off, you could get back on with your day. And whatever drugs we were taking, we were selling. I figured out early on that if I sold drugs, I got mine free. And then I twigged on that if I got other people to sell drugs for me, I had less risk, I still got mine free, and I got a load of money as well. So whatever drug we were taking was selling, and the, the heroin stopped becoming just a post-weekend thing, and it started becoming a twice-week thing, three-times-week thing, four-times-week thing. Before you know it, it's the thing. That is the main drug that you're using. And you progress, and you move on, and you start smoking it, and then before you know it, you're injecting it, and it just moves on and on and on and on. And as that happens, what heroin does is, it's not just a physical painkiller, it's an emotional painkiller. So you're just a shadow walking around. You have no guilt, you have no remorse. You will do the most horrific, horrible things and feel nothing. And if a little pang of guilt does try and sneak in, you just kill it with more drugs. So I got this reputation of being pretty dangerous and, and pretty violent. And when somebody came to me and said, do you want to get involved with an armed robbery? I didn't think twice. I didn't even bat an eyelid. I said, look, tell me what you're thinking and I'll have a look at the job. And it was a quick in and out. And they needed a driver. And I'd always stolen cars as a younger man. And this was, this will give my age away a little bit. Who remembers the Vauxhall Carlton GSI 3000? Ah, lovely car. I'd always wanted one. I knew where there was one. So what I did was I crossed the border from West Yorkshire into South Yorkshire because this is the days before police central databases. So you'd pinch the car in South Yorkshire, bring it back across the border and tell, it'd take at least a week for South Yorkshire police to even tell West Yorkshire police that there might be a nick car in the area. So if you were living in the South Yorkshire area around 1997 with a Vauxhall car and GSA 3000, I'm sorry, but it was a lovely car. And being a Vauxhall, all you needed to pinch it was a screwdriver and a bit of scaff bar. And we brought it back over, we stashed it for a night, we did the job. The job went off without a peep. We thought we'd got away, clean and clear. We'd agreed to have no contact for a few weeks, so the police couldn't patch us up together. Because of that, we didn't know that one of the lads on the job got arrested on a, on a Section 18, a serious assault charge. He'd Stanley knifed someone across the face over a dispute. And he was an addict. And after two or three days being interviewed at eight at night, twelve at midnight, two in the morning, five in the morning, he cracked. And he turned Queen's evidence against the rest of us. And the first I knew of it was when a lad who's selling for me comes banging out of breath at my door. He says, you've got to get on your toes. I said, why? He said, they're all at the top of your road. Arm response, dog units, black mariahs, they're all there. Where I live, where my flat was, it was not, not exactly a cul-de-sac. You could sort of get out of the bottom through a, a little ginnel passage. But the river air ran at the back. And they were either coming for me or the retirement home down the bottom end. Don't get me wrong, there's some dodgy pensioners in the retirement home. But I was pretty sure they were coming for me. And I knew they had police dogs, so I wasn't going to run. Okay, if you ever want children at any point in your life, you don't run from police dogs. That's all you need to know. They chew on things that ought not be chewed on. And I thought if I can make it down the back of the flats to my mate Joe's down the bottom end, I'll lay low in his and then it'll blow over. And then I can go on the run. So I managed to get down the back without being seen. I get to his. The one time I needed him to be in, the one time he wasn't. He was signing on day. He'd gone to collect his gyro. So I panicked and I kicked his door through. And I shut it back as best I could, but I'd smashed the Yale lock, the chub lock, as the door went through. And I'm watching through the, the chinking the curtains, and, and I saw them go up to mine. I heard the commotion as my door went through. I saw them marching the people out who'd been left in my flat, and I knew they wouldn't say anything. 
I thought, this is great, it'll blow over in a minute, they're getting ready to pack up and go. And as I'm watching, another load of police officers came out of the flats opposite. I thought, that's odd. I later found out that the robbery squad who'd come to arrest me hadn't bothered to tell the drug squad who'd had me under observation for six weeks that they were coming. So the robbery squad's getting ready to go home. The drug squad come out and say, what are you doing here? So I come to arrest Daryl Tunnelly, but he's not here. And the drug squad say, oh, he's here, because we saw him come in, but he's not come out, so he's here somewhere. So they started going door to door. And as they got to Joe's door, what did they find? A door that's kicked in. They opened the door, pushed it open. Hello, please, anybody in? So I came up with this genius plan in three seconds flat. I'll pretend to be Joe. It's worth a go, isn't it? So... I jumped up acting startled and surprised as if I'd been asleep on the settee. And I'd jump up and say, who are you? What are you doing in my flat? I said, oh, it's police, sir. We're looking for Daryl Tunningley. Have you seen him? I said, oh, no, he's a bad lad. Him, he lives up there. You want to stay away from him? They said, uh, said we noticed that your door's uh, been smashed in. I said, oh, no, I lost my keys. I'm waiting for the council to come and fix it. That's why I'm here. And they were buying it. You're buying my story. And just as they were getting ready to leave, this detective sergeant popped his head round the door and went, all right, Daryl, how are you doing? No manner of luck. And then it all kicked off. Where I was standing, there was a, a knife on the coffee table, and the new reputation, they weren't taking any chances. And so they backed off with lots of screaming and shouting. Then the armed response boys came in, more screaming and shouting and pointing guns. I went face down on the floor. And it's the handcuffs they use now with the, with the black section in the middle. Well, they'd just come out, and I think they were still getting the hang of using them. Because as they put them on and stood me up, they twisted them into my wrist, and it really dug in, it hurt. So, just as a, a knee-jerk reaction to try and alleviate the pressure, I flung my head back and bust the nose of the arresting officer. That wasn't a good idea. Back on the floor again, more knees in my back, tie wraps on, picked up in a chicken lock and thrown in the back of the van. Hit the fast-forward button. I knew, first interview, I knew they knew too much. They had far too much detail, far too much information. You still go not guilty. Everybody on remand in Britain generally is not guilty. Because you get more phone calls, more association time, and you get to wear your own clothes. So everybody, unless you're stupid, on remand in Britain is not guilty. Most of them are guilty, but they're not guilty, if you get what I mean. And when I was in there, I changed my plea right at the last minute to avoid a trial. And hoping I'd get a little bit of you know, clemency, you know, I'm being a good boy and admitting that I've done it. But the judge I'd been told I was getting was a guy called Judge Hoffman. And he was notorious. And he'd seen me before. And I got away with it. But he said to me, if you appear before me again, I'm going to throw the book at you. So I was a bit nervous. And my barrister had told me to expect 10 years and up. So I thought I'd got myself ready. And then I get the news that Judge Hoffman is ill. And I've got a circuit judge. I thought, brilliant, results. So I'm stood in that dock and we went through the whole rigmarole. And then I remember... The sentence being passed down, the original sentence, when he said seven and a half years. And they did a whole summing up after that, but I don't remember a word of it. Because at that moment, I was just grabbing onto the rail and using every ounce of my strength just to stop my legs from buckling out underneath me. I don't care what anybody says, how tough, rough or hard they think they are. They're all feeling the same at that moment. I thought I'd got myself ready for it. I thought I was expecting it. I later appealed it and got it down to five and a half years. But at that moment, all I had ringing through my ears, seven and a half years. And it felt like an eternity. It felt such despair. 
I'd never felt that kind of despair before. And the despair quickly turned to anger. And me being more angry than I already was was not a good thing. They took me back down to the holding cells and I just flipped. I was punching the door, kicking, screaming, swearing, shouting. They came in to try and calm me down and I chased them back out again. They said, look, if you calm down, we'll let you have ten minutes with your family. So I calmed down enough and they took me through to this visits area, a big perspex screen. And on the other side, you've got your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, they're all there. And they're all crying. And I had to do, up to that point, the hardest thing I'd ever done. Which was not cry. You had to let them believe that you were okay. I was anything but. But you had to let them believe. You know, I'll be alright, don't worry about it, I'll be out in no time, I'm okay. But when they brought me back and they put me in the, the sweat box to transport, I made a decision. I thought, that's it. If I'm going to be bad, I'm going to be the best kind of bad I can possibly be. The gloves are off. There's nothing to live for anymore. So when I got back on the wing in HMP Doncaster, I went looking for opportunities. That first morning, we're, like, we're going out for breakfast. They had a, a pool table on, on, the first flo- on the ground floor on this wing. Two lads stood by the pool table at breakfast. And as I walked past, I thought they, one of them said something directed towards me. So I just casually walked over and they didn't even look at them, didn't say a word, just picked up one of the pool balls and smashed it around this kid's head. And he pinned on the floor, just lacing him. The first response officers came in, riot gear, dragged me off, put me in the block. That one got me a month in the block. A block is a 24-hour lockdown on rotation, so every second day you get an hour out of yourself. Brought me back onto the wing. Breakfast time again. Don't know what it was about breakfast. I think I was just grumpy before I'd eaten. And we got, I got to the servery this time, as far as the serving, the officers that were serving on the servery, I took what he said to me to be disrespectful in front of all the lads. So I grabbed him, dragged him over the counter, and I started beating him. That one got me shipped out to another prison. And I kept repeating the same behaviour, till eventually they shipped me all the way down to uh, Glen Parver in Leicester. Tigers Road, South Wigston in Leicester. And it was a stitch-up. It was a horrible prison. It was an old Victorian three-tier prison with a, a, a metal mesh safety netting on the first floor to stop anything that flew over hitting the floor. And I thought, I've got to do something drastic to get shipped out of here, and I need to be shipped out quick. That first morning, they unlocked me. I walked, I was up on the threes. I walked onto the landing, grabbed the first lad I saw. I don't know who he was, and I threw him over the railing. He landed on the netting. He was fine. He needed to change his boxer shorts. But apart from that, he was all right. But it worked. The governor said, I want this man out of my prison. And I got shipped back up north to HMP Wolds near Hull. But I was also category aid. I was put on cons. Because at this point, I'm still, I'm 17 going on 18. And they put me on cons, which is the adult side of the prison. And they put me on category A because I was too dangerous to be with everyone else. But that prison was different. It was quiet. People just wanted to get on with the jailer and get out. And I landed a pretty cushy job. I got a job in the welding shop. The ironic thing was, we were making the internal gates for the prison service. So I was making the things that were keeping me in. And you have no idea how many escape plans ran through my head. But while I was in there, and I'm working away, and minding my own business, there's a lad coming around the workshop, one of the other inmates. With a clipboard. This wasn't unusual. There's was always somebody trying to get you on an anger management course or an education program, something like that. 
And he comes round and I'm, and I'm watching him get rejected by everybody. And he eventually gets to me. And he said, do you want to go on an Alpha course? I said, well, what's an Alpha course? He said, oh, it's in the chapel. As soon as he said the word chapel, I just thought, oh, great, he's a Bible basher. I said, look, get out of my face, sunshine, before I slap you. And to this day, he did the best Speedy Gonzales impression I've ever seen. Under, under, leap out of him when he gone. And I thought, no more of it. And I'm in the workshop again the next day. And he's coming round again. And he was getting closer to me and I just thought, you cheeky beggar. He's going to get what I promised him the day before. So I was just waiting for him to get within slapping range. And I was just going to turn around and hit him. And just as he was about to get within slapping range, he blurted something out. He went, you get Wednesday afternoon out of bang up and you get free coffee and you get free biscuits. <gasps> I said, I'll see you on Wednesday, sunshine. I then, unknowingly, went and did my first evangelistic act. I rounded up all the lads in the workshop and said, come on boys, we're all going alpha. So they were expecting maybe half a dozen on this course. They've got 30. 30 people on this course. Drug dealers, murderers, armed robbers, you name it, on this course. I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't still really know what the alpha course was. And when I got there, I certainly wasn't expecting what I found. There was three people running the course. One was a vicar. That made sense to me. That was in context. Dog colour on, works for God, that's where he should be. And... But the other two, it was two retired nuns. How old have you got to be to be a retired nun? I didn't even know they did. And if somebody said to me, with all my stereotypes of church, if somebody said to me, paint a picture of a fine Christian woman, these girls ticked every one of my stereotype boxes. Sandals with socks and a slight moustache. I later discovered that not all Christian women have the moustache. I found one that didn't have one and married her quick. I thought, what have I come to? This, this is not worth obnobs. Chocolate ones maybe, but not plain ones. And we just started giving them a really hard time. We just started laying into them. I wasn't interested initially in what they had to say. And I just went at them, you know, giving them the usual stuff. God doesn't exist. Even if he did, what's he ever done for me? What can you possibly know about life and living? What can you possibly know? You've been locked in a nunnery for 900 years. You're older than Yoda. And we just gave him such a hard time. And the thing that stopped me wasn't so much what they said, but how they did it. Because they came back at us every single time with love and compassion. They had every right to be upset. They had every right to get us in trouble. They could have got us nicked what we were doing. But they just kept loving us. Now, when you're sat there and you genuinely feel dead on the inside, I honestly believed I would never have the capacity to love or feel loved ever again. I thought, I'm just dead on the inside. I'd never have that. So when they hit me with that, that was like getting slapped in the face with a wrecking ball. And it just stopped me dead in my tracks. And I thought, you know what, Daryl, for once in your life, shut up and listen to somebody else. Is your plan A seriously so fantastic that you're not even willing to listen to anyone else? You might be in here today thinking, well, I'm not as bad as you. I haven't done the things that you've done. You know, I nicked a Mars bar once from the corner shop when I was ten, but that's about it. Well, let me ask you a question. If I had in my possession 
uh, a DVD or Blu-ray if you want to get bang up today. On this disc is everything. And I mean everything you've ever done. Even the stuff you've only done in private. Everything you've ever said. Even the things you've only said to yourself. Here's a scary one, especially for blokes. Everything you've ever thought is on this disc. Let's have a show of hands. Who'd like me to sit down with a bit of popcorn with your, your wife or your kids or your gran or your granddad and watch the film? Yeah, nobody wants that being seen. So the point is we all fall short of the standard. Every single one of us. I just acted mine out in a more dramatic way. It was week three of this course now, and the topic was, why did Jesus die? See, to be honest, I'd never had an issue believing in God. I kind of looked at the world out there and I thought, well, it didn't happen by accident. And I'd, I'd been to a church junior school, so I knew the Lord's Prayer. I, knew, I had all the head knowledge I needed. But I'd never asked that question. Why did Jesus die? More importantly, why would he die for me? I'm a scumbag. How many people are dead because of me? How many families have I destroyed? How many communities have I wrecked? What could he possibly see worth redeeming in me? I'm going through this whole thought process and I keep getting told that he loved me so much that he was willing to stand in the dock and take my sentence, even if it was a death sentence, which it was. And he took it for me. I just thought, wow. Came to the end of the course and I had more questions when I ended it than when I started it. That's kind of how Alpha works. And they've given us a Bible. I'd never had a Bible before. They've given us some pamphlets. Christians call them tracts. I've never quite figured out why. All right, We have our own words for certain things. It's just a pamphlet. Don't get freaked out. They try and give you a tract on the way out. Just say, shut up, it's a leaflet. And, and as I was going, they said, oh, I hope we see you on Sunday. And I said something like, if there's free biscuits, I'll be there. And I got back to the cell. It was a Wednesday night. I remember there was nothing, nothing on the radio. The arches had finished. And I had nothing to read. So I picked up the Bible. And I just started thumbing through it. All Christians have done this at some point in their life. Oh, guide me, oh God. They just thumb through the Bible. But I just sat a thumbing through it. And the thing that got my attention was, there's a book in the Old Testament called the book of Job. But it's spelled J-O-B. So if you'd never read the Bible before, what would you think it said? Job, exactly. I thought it was a funny place to find one. I'll have a read. So I start reading the book of Job. And I figure out it's a bloke called Job. And this guy, oh, he's like the Simon Cowell of the Old Testament. This guy's got everything you could wish or want for. He's loaded. And then in this relatively short period of time, he loses everything. His kids are killed. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. His friends turn on him. His wife turns against him. Everything that could go wrong, goes wrong. But through the whole process, his faith in God won't budge. Just won't budge. In fact, he ends the process. He gets everything back and then some. But he ends the process and he makes this statement that I thought I knew God. 
Now I truly do. And I thought, how? How has he gone through all of that and ended up with a stronger faith in God than when he started it? I want to know. I'm a Yorkshireman. I'm stubborn. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. I want to know. So I sat there on my bunk and I said the first real prayer I had ever said in my life. And I can't repeat it word for word because there are quite a lot of swear words in it. But do you know God speaks every language including blue? What he's looking for is a genuine plea. Well, the gist of it was this. God, I, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I still can't quite figure out why. But I believe you have. I believe that you're offering me not a second chance. It's more than that. I believe you're offering me a new life. You're going to take the old slate and you're going to smash it. Incinerate it. So there's not even a shadow of a memory of it in existence anymore. Give me a whole new one. But I need you to prove it in me. I need you to do away with the drug addiction. I need you to do away with the anger and the hate and the violence and the bitterness and the resentment. And if you do that for me, I will live the rest of my life for you. He didn't have many things in prison in those days. No TVs and PlayStation, all that sort of stuff they have now. What he did have was your word. It's the only thing they couldn't take off you. If I said something, I meant it. If I said to someone, I'm going to break your jaw, they knew it was going to happen. I hook or by crook, it was going to happen. So when I said this to God, I meant it. I meant it with every fibre of my being. So I expected some form of a response. You know, I wasn't looking for a shaking cell door or a visit from an angel, a booming voice, yes, my son, but something, one fuzzy feeling would have done. Nothing. Flat as a pancake. So like, cheers for listening, I'm off to bed. But when I woke up the next morning, there was a series of very, very freaky events. I always woke up just before the screws knocked us up for breakfast so I could have a smoke in bed. I was gagging for a smoke first thing in the morning. I rolled over to pick the smoke up that I'd made the night before and I couldn't. I couldn't touch it. Everything about it, the look, the thought, the smell, everything made me want to be sick. I thought I'd have picked up Stomach bug, have I eaten something dodgy? What's going on? But I couldn't stand it, and I had to get rid of it, and I put it out my cell window. I sort of sat up on my bunk and looked on my shelf, and there's my tobacco and my wristers and my wick lighter. And the feeling came back, but worse. I thought, I've got to get rid. It's not Jesus calling, shut it off. It, it's... I thought, I've got to get rid. So I got it, and I put it out my cell window. But as soon as it gone, I started to feel better. But I was still freaking out. And then the thought of my cannabis popped in my head. I always had enough in the cell for a couple of splits. As soon as that popped in my head, it came back, but worse than before, with a vengeance. I was choking on my own throat. And I knew what I had to do. And I got the cannabis out of my stash. I put it straight out my window. As soon as it had gone, I felt better. Whoever was on yard cleaning duty that morning must have thought it was Christmas come early. But I was still freaking out. So I said to myself, Daryl, calm down. Go get a wash. Go get a shave. Went over to my sink and I started getting a wash. And I looked in the mirror and stopped. Because I didn't recognise my own reflection. So that, that guy's smiling. He's just smiling. He's beaming. He's glowing. Then I noticed I didn't just look different. I felt different. 
Everything that had been eating me up inside just wasn't there anymore. The addiction just wasn't there anymore. All I had in me was like this big ball of joy trying to break its way out of my chest. If I knew how to dance a jig, I'd have been doing one there and then in myself. And at that moment, they opened us up for breakfast. I stepped out onto the landing. The lad next door to me, Duddy, he was a bigger nutter than I was. We ran the wing together. He looked at me and went, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know, I'm just happy. And he gave me this kind of a look that said it was time for a padded cell. And <laughs> I thought, I've got to talk to somebody that can tell me what's going on. The only person I could think of was the chaplain. So I went straight to the principal officer on the wing. I said, look, I need an application to see the chaplain. It's the way it works in prison. You want to go to the toilet, you put an application, and you go in three days. It's just the system. So I got the application. I wrote down everything that had happened that night before and everything that had happened that morning. The PO read it, and he rang the chaplain. He's like, get on the wing now, he's freaking out. Now the chaplain, he'd been getting ready for morning doodah, so he was in his full regalia. So he comes on the wing, and I just told him everything. Everything. And he sort of paused, and he looked at me. I'll never forget what he said. He said, the man that went to bed last night, not the same man that's standing here this morning. You're a new creation. As soon as he said those words, I started blubbing. I'm not talking a little bit sniffly. I'm talking snot flinging, tears flying, wailing. And when I started, he started. And then we hugged. So I'm standing on the wing in front of all the lads, crying my eyes out, hugging a bloke in a frock. So it got their attention. He said, well, I'll come back, we'll get you over to the chapel, we need to talk some more. The PO's like, I don't care where you take him, just get him off the wing. <laughs> I turned back onto the wing and all the lads were still having the breakfast. And I didn't know how else to say it, and I just shouted out, Jesus has saved me. No more drugs, no more fighting, no more nothing. If you've got anything of mine, I don't want it back. If you owe me anything, forget about it. And they all, it was like a rehearsed Scooby-Doo moment. They kind of all went, oh! And it took them a couple of weeks to realise I was serious. They kept trying to give me stuff back. I had about 30 ounces of tobacco being held on the wing and phone cards and all sorts. I said, I'm serious, I don't want it. That was 15 years ago. Not long after that, I was shipped out to another prison where I was given the job as chapel orderly. And I was discipled by some amazing people. And those last two years of prison, there were still bars on the window, but I'd never felt so free in my life. Those are some of the happiest times of my life, although I was still in prison. God broke out in that prison. We started running out for courses. Back to back we had to run them. There was such a high demand for them. All they had in those days, it was just Nicky Gumbel on the VHS and the books and I love Nicky to bits but he didn't translate really well into convicts you know posh to convicts he didn't, he didn't he was, so we had to do away with the videos and sort of translate what Nicky was saying into convicts and but God was just breaking through two of the units ended up becoming drug free units because so many people were being set free from addiction the, uh, the home secretary was Jack Straw at the time and, and Sir David Ramsbottom was the director of prisons flew in, in a helicopter, to see what was happening in the prison. It was phenomenal. Channel 4 did a little documentary about what was happening in the prison. It was revival in the prison. And then it came time to come out. 
And I wanted the first step out to be the right step. So a lot of prayer went into this. And the only one I couldn't shake from my heart and from my head was a church called Hope Corner Community Church in Yonkong, near Liverpool. All the scousers in the prison warned me not to go there, said it was a toilet. But I couldn't shake it. Reverend Mark Finch, my pastor, picked me up, who was also a magistrate, picked me up from the prison gates and took me to his house. His house. Where I met his wife, Karen. Maybe the best lasagna I've ever had. I've been in prison, but we're still pretty good by any standards. I met his three kids. His, his two sons, Matthew and Tim. Matthew is now one of my tutors in the special educational needs school we run. His other son, Tim, he's my youth pastor. And his eldest is his daughter, Rebecca. And she's my wife. Yeah, I married the pastor's daughter. Chiching. And... Not only does God have a plan, he has a sense of humour. Ever since that day, I've lived up to my end of the deal. I will live for you. You asked me the question, when did I become a Christian? The honest answer was this morning in the bathroom in Travel Lodge. Premier Inn, sorry. Every single morning, I will wake up and I will give my life over to Jesus. Do what you want. A lot of people ask, how did you... How did God do it? How did you get free of drugs like that in that one hit? How did you get free of those addictions? I said, I didn't. What happened was, that man died. He died in that cell. The man that stepped out of that cell was not the same person. This old-fashioned word in the Bible called repent. It means do a 180. Turn your back on. Leave it where it is. Die to it. See, Jesus never tried to convince anyone to believe in him. You wouldn't be in here if you didn't believe. But what he did call was for people to follow him. He said, follow me. Leave what you're doing. Shift your focus from that to me. Follow. And we'll have the most amazing adventure you could ever imagine. Just follow me. I'll never let you down. Just follow me. I'll never let you go. Just follow me. And I promise I will be with you until the end of age. He's never let me down. He's never let me go. I've been through trials, tests, temptations, as have we all. But he's never let me go. I'm rough around the edges. My theology still developing. But God has this thing called grace. And he just kind of lets me get on with it. He kind of says to me, I know you love me. Just go tell people. Just go tell people. I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for him. And that's why I want to plead with you. Not to believe in him. They said we wouldn't be here if you didn't. I want to plead with you. Follow him. If you don't remember a moment in your life when you said to Jesus, forgive me. I want to follow you. I want to walk with you. I want to do what you commanded me to do. I don't remember that moment of Jesus just stepping in. 
the Holy Spirit just firing you up. Don't remember that moment. It hasn't happened. You haven't done it. It's not like, Jesus is not your car keys. You don't forget where you put him. You don't forget that moment. You don't forget that day. You don't forget that encounter. You don't look God in the face and then forget. I want want to give you an opportunity in this place this morning. For those of you who have never just stood up, physically stood up and said, I will. I will follow. I want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. In front of this world, your world, the world around you, to stand up and say, yeah, I will. I'm going to. Because I know that the blessing is going to far outweigh any trial that comes along. But as I was praying in the room to speak in here, I had this really clear picture of a stream, lots of streams, with rocks blocking them. And it took me to a piece of scripture where it talks about streams of living water flowing from every believer. Just flowing out of us. Streams, multiple, lots of. A lot of you in this place, just through life, just through normal life, picked up some rocks. And you're kind of surviving on a trickle. Not streams of living water. You've got kind of a trickle going on. And those rocks, it could be anything. It could be, it could be attitude. It, it could be pride. You might say, well, I'm not proud. Well, maybe it's the pride of self-reliance. Maybe it's addiction to drugs, legal or illegal. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe there's something going on in your marriage. Maybe it could be a multitude of things. But it's just blocking. Maybe it's a sickness, physical or mental. It's just blocking those streams of living water that God wants you to have. He wants you to have abundance. He wants you to have life in all its abundance. I'm not preaching the Disney version of Christianity, by the way. All right, It doesn't work like that. Jesus said, they're going to hate you. They're going to punish you. They might even kill you for following me. But you watch how much I'll bless you every time that happens. That's the abundance. That God will just smash those rocks in you. That as you die to yourself in this place, a new person will leave. This beautiful tradition from the Old Testament with the temple in Jerusalem, where people would go to worship, but they would never leave by the same door that they entered. So that they would never leave the same way they came in. I just love that picture of never leaving the same way you came in. Don't leave this place the same way you came in. 